This is Competition Law with Professor Karon Beaton Wells, exploring the challenges in competition policy, law, and enforcement. This series looks at the impact of those challenges in a digital economy and on society overall, whether you're a citizen, consumer, or competitor. In this episode, Karon is joined by Dr. Thibaut Schreppel to speak with Glenn Wheel, co author of the book Radical Markets, about his ideas for harnessing technology to create a radically equal and just society. I mean, this is literally the story of every attempt to build a decentralized economy on the basis of private property and the ownership of capital. This is literally every time that it's been tried, it starts out with, oh, it's going to be decentralized. And then people are like, oh, shoot, turns out that capital tends to get really concentrated if we put it under private ownership. Shoot. This is literally the oldest story in the history of political economy. The only way that you can actually preserve decentralization is to understand that there are actually economies of scale and that you have to govern systems with economies of scale in some sort of humanistic, democratic way. Here's Karon Beaton-Wells. If you had a blank canvas on which to paint an economy and a society, where would you start? And what would it look like when you finished? Would it resemble what we have in wealthy societies today? Or would it look quite different? As you know, we live in a time in which there are big challenges. Inequality, climate destruction, economic instability, political turmoil. Some see technology as at least in part responsible for some of these issues. Others see it as the solution. Glenn Wheel political economist and social technologist, cautions against getting swept up in the promise of technology. He argues that what we need is to reimagine our social and political institutions and harness the power of technology to create the type of society in which we want to live. So put on the biggest, big picture hat that you have and get ready for some reimagining. Here's Glenn Wheel. Well, we've seen a dramatic increase in inequality. We've seen a slowdown in growth. And, you know, we were told by Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, people like this, that if we cut taxes, we'd get more growth in exchange for more inequality. And we haven't really done that. And this is leading to a lot of rising political conflict. But increasingly beyond that, I think there's something more than pure economics. I think there's a feeling of a loss of agency a feeling of the concentration of power away from communities that people feel they understand and can control, erosion of the sense of both community and agency that I think ties together a diverse and rich society, and a feeling that more and more power is fleeing to digital platforms, to a small number of wealthy people, to financial elites, And I think it's really undermining the legitimacy of our current set of economic arrangements. And you say that at the core of the reasons for this situation is actually a failure of ideas. Those are your words. What ideas do you have in mind in particular? The thing I think is really disappointing is that, and I think this is less true in Europe, maybe less true in Australia than it is in the United States, but there's a sense that technology... It's exciting. Technology should evolve. Technology should be dynamic. 
but that social institutions shouldn't dramatically change. And we've pretty much gotten to the end of history in terms of our social institutions. And there's not much out there really being proposed in terms of reforms. And I think that there is a really sad thing that's happened in Western culture. If you think about the beginning of industrialism, you had democracy emerge, you had labor unions emerge, you had freedom for the slaves and so forth. All that stuff went right along with all the technological evolution of that period. Nowadays, all everyone, especially in the United States, talks about is the way in which technology is going to change. But technology is just one part of the change in our social life together. And technology needs to co-evolve with our social imagination. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to me that on top of the importance of the institutions, that they are two bastions of capitalism, which are private property and the competitive market, at the very art of your thinking on how to reform markets and recreate a truly liberal order. But it seems to me at the same time that the policies, rules and institutions to protect competition have proliferated around the world over the last 50 years. So what's going wrong, in your opinion? So there's a couple of things. First of all, I think the competition policy, while it's proliferated, has become increasingly technocratic. They focus on the power that companies have over consumers rather than the power that they have over workers. And the power that companies have over workers is, in fact, much greater than the power that they have over consumers. They've ignored the rise of a small number of institutional investors, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, who control so much of the corporate economy. So antitrust has really been lagging. But beyond that, I think there's a more fundamental problem, which is that at some level, capitalism has no way to deal with economies of scale, with network effects. Because ultimately, those just end up becoming monopolies of some sort under capitalism, because that's just basic economic theory tells you that. And without a way of dealing with those, you just end up with paradox after paradox, because increasing returns is the reason why we have civilization. It's the reason why we all live in cities together. It's the reason why we're connected by networks. If we could all do more on our own than we can do together, we would all be living in huts in the woods. So I think that there's a fundamental tension there. And while a constantly involving set of competition policies can help address it, ultimately that final paradox is always going to be there. So talking about those competition policy, if I hear you well, companies, they have big power over workers and also over the consumer. And that is because of the network effects or the fact that the natural tendency, the emergent order in a way, will be to tend to monopolies. And yet, as you know, the idea of saying that dominance and power in itself should be contested using antitrust is... yeah contested itself. The idea will be to say that we should not worry about the power. And in fact, we should be happy that companies seek power because that is the explanation why the prices are going down and they improve their products. So what would you answer? And what would be the kind of view of that? I wouldn't want competition policy to handle all the things I'm describing. I think competition policy can be a useful band-aid. But if you want to fundamentally transform the economy, you need just different ways of thinking about private property, different ways of thinking about the common good, different ways of thinking about organizations other than 
for-profit corporations and so forth. So in the long term, I have a much bolder vision, but I think there's a lot that antitrust can do in the near term. You've suggested that we have become the serfs of the Google and Facebook feudal lords. And I think in another context, you referred to us as batteries for the data economy. You've indicated, and it's apparent from your book, that your proposals do go far beyond antitrust. In the context of data, though, one of your most interesting proposals is that we be paid for our data. Can you Tell us a bit more about your thinking in relation to this and broadly, how would that sort of system work? Yeah, so there's a great historical precedent for what we're seeing right now, which is that when the movie camera was first invented, Thomas Edison got a patent on the notion of just videotaping people on the streets and calling that artificial theater. So no one would need to see actors and all the money could just flow to the people who owned the cameras and the intellectual property. And it was actually a French filmmaker trying to get around that who said, well, why don't we do taped theater? And we'll actually give people credits and give them a chance to develop a career. And lo and behold, when you treat people as agents, when you give them a chance to actually advance, you get film schools emerging, you get great actors, you get people who want all their lives to be a film star, and you get great art coming out of that. And right now in the data economy, we're not paying people for all the value that we're extracting from their daily activities. And if we did, I think we'd get much better data as well as a much fairer and more equal world. So are you proposing that people actually be paid in monetary terms? How would you value data from that perspective? The way I think about it is that people's data is what creates artificial intelligence. And... Artificial intelligence is an artificial name. Artificial intelligence is no more artificial intelligence than the factory was artificial intelligence. It's just one more way of combining together the work of human beings as a group to create things that we value. So people should be paid just as they are in a factory, the marginal product of their labor, the marginal product of the data that they contribute. And that's something that's actually pretty easy to calculate in the statistical model. So how would you calculate that? Because it seems to me that the way the data is processed is also what provides the value to the data. So would it be dependent on the actual algorithm behind the use of the data? Absolutely. I mean, in a traditional economy, there's a marginal product of capital, which you can call the computers. There's a marginal product of high-skilled labor, which you could call the programmers. And there's a marginal product of less-skilled labor, which you could call the data. These are just newfangled names for concepts we've been dealing with for hundreds of years. The labor movement didn't just demand that people work less. In fact, people ended up getting some limitations on working hours, but they also got higher pay and they got better working conditions when they were at work. And I think that that is what we need in the data economy. We don't just need more limits on how our data is used. We need it to be used more smartly and we need to be compensated for it. So I think that a data labor movement should think about all of those aspects, as well as about protecting our attention from being colonized and protecting the quality of news that we produce and that we consume. So let me now ask you about blockchain. And obviously we have a lot to ask you about the technology. But first, let me ask you, why do you become interested in blockchain? And what is the most exciting you think about the technology? 
I have a somewhat unorthodox perspective on blockchain among people who are engaged with the community. I fundamentally think that blockchain is more of a social movement than it is a technology. I think that there is a set of values that many people within blockchain have about decentralized information systems and the structure of information systems representing structures of power in society that is very important and meaningful. And there are lots of uses and applications of that perspective, and it's managed to organize a fascinating group of people around it. However, I actually think the current structure of, we could get into the technical details, but the way in which the consensus is formed, the nature of the database, et cetera, are not likely to have a wide range of applications. And so on that idea that blockchain might be a social technology in a sense, it seems to me that one of the boldest proposals in radical markets where you don't precisely discuss blockchain, but is the abolition of private property and the introduction of a system of partial common ownership together with a Harburger tax. Yes, exactly. For the listeners who may not know what it is or simply how to pronounce it, could you briefly explain and perhaps tell us whether or not you see blockchain facilitating such a system in the future? Yeah, so the idea is that there would be a registry of the value of different assets that would be made available. And anyone could purchase an asset at a price that was assessed by its owner, and that owner would pay a tax on that self-assessed price. So the price that they would set as a valuation for taxes would also offer an option to purchase to other citizens effectively. In the original formulation in the book, the notion is that any citizen could have access to that. I think increasingly we imagine this having a little bit more of a club structure where members of a particular community would have access to that. And in this sense, I increasingly think that a completely global open blockchain may not, for most applications, be the right basis. Instead, you may want some more local, partially open data structure. That's one example of where I've come to be more skeptical of the blockchain as being exactly the right way of thinking about things. So are you referring to the emergence of more private rather than public blockchain? And if so, would that not simply take us in the same direction as we've gone with digital platforms, that is more power to the few and less to the people? Well, I think that there is a big mistake that people often make of seeing the only two options as being either something that is 100% open and covers everyone in the entire world and something that is controlled by private property in the interests of a small number of people. I think instead you can have emergent community-based formations. That is fundamentally what decentralization is. I think that having something that is completely open paradoxically ends up leading to the domination of a small number of people. And the reason is because if you sort of have no rules and if everything is governed by proof of work and 
capital ownership effectively, which is the way that blockchains work, then those who have capital will get richer and richer and they'll end up controlling the system. So I actually think that the notion of the global whole versus the isolated and possibly anonymous individual is the wrong way to conceptualize data structures. Instead, I think the right way to conceptualize data structures is as a bunch of different overlapping communities that act in the common interest of the community and are governed democratically in some sense. That's quite different than what's embodied in the blockchain data structure. What are the incentives that would be at work in the context of a system of the kind you describe? Are they largely social incentives to be part of a community and derive an identity from that membership? Or are there other economic incentives that would be at play? No, I wouldn't make economic incentives central to everything, but those economic incentives wouldn't be driven by private property. They would be driven by partially commonly owned property, as Thibault was referring to, and that partially commonly owned property would provide revenue through the tax that we were talking about that could help finance collective goods uh, within that community. I'm not quite sure we... I've got to an explanation of that tax. And again, it may be that some of our listeners are not quite sure what a harbinger tax is. Yeah, absolutely. The idea is that anyone who owns an asset, let's say a piece of spectrum, would have to put a price on that asset and they'd have to stand ready to sell the asset at the price they declare. And then they would pay a tax based on that self-declared price. It would be a flat tax? Yeah, something like 7%, but it might differ depending on the type of asset. And no doubt that sort of tax system would have real ramifications for the issues of inequality you've identified? It would basically take something like two-thirds of private wealth and make it common property. Speaking about property, and again, staying with the issue of data and the question whether we should have property rights in respect of our personal data, do you see blockchain as providing some solution to this problem that we've really lost control of our own data and hence our privacy or our intimacy, as you've referred to it? Yeah, so I don't like the idea of data as property. I think it's extremely mistaken. The reason is that there is no data that is not relational. You know, my mother's date of birth is a piece of data about me, you would say, but it's obviously not about me. It's about my mother, but it's obviously not about my mother. It's about my mother's mother. Just think about it, right? Uh, So data is not individualistic. Data is part of a community. Now it's not public. It's part of a community of intimacy, as you mentioned. And this is precisely the problem with the blockchain, because the blockchain only has two primitives, completely public and completely anonymous. And almost no information in our lives is that way. And if you try to impose that, you do tremendous violence to the nature of social life. Your thoughts on this remind me of some of the Buddhism reading I've done about the concept of us all being interconnected in some way every aspect of us goes back to something that came before. And 
it's a really interesting take, certainly on the privacy and data protection debate. And you have said that you're not just a political economist, you're a social technologist. Do you see blockchain as part of a movement towards transforming social institutions in the way you've described? Can it fix our politics? The way I think about it is that if you asked me what was the temple in Jerusalem in you know 600 BC good for? Some people at the time might have said making it rain or um, winning a war or something like that, right? But in retrospect, I think we would be somewhat skeptical of those claims. And we would probably have to say, well, it was really good for creating a Jewish civilization that eventually gave us Einstein, Freud, and Marx. And I think blockchain might be a bit similar. I'm not sure it's a great data structure, but it's been a great catalyst for people rethinking fundamental issues of political organization and legitimacy. Certainly, there is what you might think of as a hardcore community that's advocating developing and using blockchain, but equally government and the big end of town have become increasingly enticed into the blockchain promise. Do you see that as a good thing that the large powerful institutions are getting into the space or do you see that as potentially having the technology and its potential for social transformation distorted? I mean, as I said, I don't think that the technology to me is very exciting. The thing that's exciting to me about the blockchain is the notion that data structures represent power relations. The notion that by architecting those data structures, we can re-architect societies and that therefore in making choices about technology, the fundamental problems have to do with political philosophy, but not political philosophy in the abstract, political philosophy in an algorithmic formalizable sense. And that connection between mathematical technologies, mechanism design, and political philosophy as the basis for designing a society, that to me is incredibly exciting. But does blockchain get that right? No, I, I don't think so. So you've mentioned the fact that blockchain might be a political philosophy in the algorithmic sense. And one idea, it's a proposal that you made in the radical markets that the abolition of the one person, one vote system might be necessary and that its replacement might be quadratic voting. Could you explain briefly what it is? And also if you see that system being implemented within the blockchain ecosystem itself? Yeah, I think that's a great example. So the quadratic voting system is one under which citizens have equal amounts of voice credits rather than one vote on every issue. And they can use these voice credits to weigh in on issues and candidates that are important to them in favor of or against. So they don't have to put all their votes equally on every issue. They could choose the issues that are most important to them and put more votes on those. So they don't put everything on the one issue that they care most about It becomes increasingly expensive to get more votes on an issue the more votes that you buy on it. And that's the quadratic nature of the cost. So that's the idea of quadratic voting. But I think this is a perfect example of where 
on the one hand, this is very exciting to people in blockchain. They like the idea of protocols for voting that might be optimal, things that can be put into algorithms. So they like that idea. But on the other hand, quadratic voting is completely impossible under the current structure of the blockchain. The current structure of the blockchain is based on anonymity. Anonymity completely destroys the notion of quadratic voting because you could make a million of yourself and get millions of votes. So it's just totally useless if everything's anonymous. So what that shows you is that there's a spirit of blockchain of thinking about these protocols for organizing ourselves that's great. But the actual technology itself is totally inimical at present to any sort of democratic structure. And yet, it seems to me that blockchain might be the best medium for quadratic voting eventually, or maybe... What do you mean by the blockchain? People say the blockchain, and I don't actually know what people are talking about. Because the thing is, if what you mean is the notion of using algorithms to structure databases rather than hierarchical authority and having distributed data storage, that I think is great. I don't think that that bears almost any relationship to what is currently referred to by the blockchain. The currently referred to by the blockchain has a few features. First of all, everybody stores one single public database. There's not overlapping storage of different elements of information. Number two, the consensus that maintains the integrity of that blockchain is completely unrelated to humanity. It's only related to computational power. And third, as a result of that, everybody approaches it in an anonymous way, and there's a lot of energy wasted to do that. So those three features are like central to every currently working blockchain. So if by blockchain you simply mean the use of mechanism designed to create databases rather than relying on hierarchical authority. I love blockchain. If by blockchain you mean the three things I just said, I think it's a really ill-conceived technology. So in a sense, you, as of today, your belief is that the other type of distributed ledger are potentially more interesting than the blockchain itself with the three key characteristics that you just described. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether ledger is exactly the right word, but yeah, I'm a huge fan of distributed databases. No question. But I think that the distribution of the database has to bear some resemblance to the natural places where that data belongs, rather than it all going to some central public thing and then being copied equally by everyone. I think that's a mistake. So can I understand that better, Glenn? You say one of the issues you have with blockchain is the way in which consensus is determined by computational logic rather than by humanity in practical terms. How does one derive consensus in a more humanistic way? Well, right now, the way that things work is that basically anybody who has a CPU can go on and try to make a block and they can get some rewards for that. And they store the database in exchange for that. But you can imagine a very different approach, which is every human being, not every CPU, has the chance to earn those rewards. And that those human beings 
in groups pay for the data that is private to their intimacy to be stored in a way that is fiduciary to them. And that is distributed. That is definitely distributed. But it doesn't like all go up to one central public thing and then get distributed out to everybody else. Instead, it is actually local to those who use it. I mean, isn't the issue with blockchain technology as it's currently developing that, in fact, the consensus mechanism is increasingly governed or dominated by small groups or large organizations that perform the mining function on blockchain such that we're starting to see at levels in the blockchain ecosystem the same type of tendency towards concentration that we've seen in the platform economy? Yeah, and this is utterly unsurprising. I mean, this is literally the story of every attempt to build a decentralized economy on the basis of private property and the ownership of capital. This is literally every time that has been tried, it starts out with, oh, it's going to be decentralized. And then people are like, oh, shoot, turns out that capital tends to get really concentrated if we put it under private ownership. Shoot. This is literally the oldest story in the history of political economy. And it should be literally no surprise at all that that is inevitably what is going to happen. The only way that you can actually preserve decentralization is to understand that there are actually economies of scale and that you have to govern systems with economies of scale in some sort of humanistic, democratic way if you don't want them to be captured as the private property of the few. You're done quite a bit of work and shared your thinking with Vitalik Buterin of Ethereum. Now, there's someone who is governing, if I can say that in a loose way, one of the largest players already in the blockchain community. How does he respond to your thinking on this score? Well, Vitalik and I tend to agree on almost everything, I would say. And even when we're not writing together, most of the time when I'm writing on my own, I end up sticking something into a shared Dropbox folder, just forgetting that I shared it with him. And he reads it and then sends me like three pages of comments on it. So we see eye to eye on this stuff. And I think that he sees a lot of the weaknesses of the current architecture, and he's very interested in addressing them. And Tibo, that probably takes us to your questions around how uh, value on the blockchain ecosystem is derived. Yes, exactly. It seems to me that one of the very interesting ideas in the article that you wrote with Vitalik, which is called Liberal Radicalism, is that some blockchains are built around currencies intended to represent the value of the ecosystem. Because of that precisely, because blockchains are using some of them, not all of them, but most of them, let's say, are using tokens and currencies, it creates a disconnection between the value of the blockchain and the incentive to join the blockchain. And in fact, you may want to join the blockchain when the tokens or the currencies are cheap. And it seems that it is a powerful way to compete with outside blockchain services, because first, network effects are not so critical here, and also because they might be created more rapidly on the blockchain. I was wondering what do you think of that idea of the confrontation between the blockchain world, in a sense, and the outside blockchain world? Well, again, it depends a lot on what one means by blockchains. In practice, the reality is almost all the value on blockchains has been captured by an extremely small set of people who randomly got extremely wealthy. 
it's been a far more extreme version of the horrors of the platform economy. You look at blockchains, LLC, I don't know if you followed that, which captured a very large chunk of all the wealth made on Ethereum. Basically, it's become a vehicle for just a few people who happen to have owned a lot of this currency to just steal from a huge number of people. And then the bubble pops. So that's a horrible, horrible thing. That's a terrible outcome. There is a lot of interest in the notion of trying to create communities where that doesn't happen. And that's what Vitalik and I are working on. And I think that's great. And I think those communities could be extremely productive and could out compete a lot of the rest of capitalism. So I think that's super exciting. But I don't think the current blockchains have accomplished that. I think they've done something quite opposite. And so if you were to be at the very top of one of the big tech company, you won't be so worried. No, I mean, I would certainly be worried. I just don't think it is blockchain per se that's going to do it. It's the broader root movement around decentralization that is a huge threat. It's already taken down Facebook stock a huge amount. So now coming back about that idea of decentralization, it seems that the key issue is to maintain decentralization without collective organization. So you further say in, in this article that using blockchain, this organization will emerge in a natural and economic efficiently way. But my question is, what if that natural way is a cartel? Because after all, cartels and collusion are economically efficient, at least to the colluders, but of course they are illegal. So would you say that they are legitimized by nature because they are the result of this natural way, which is decentralized? Well, I mean, look, the reason why cartels are problematic is that they represent the interests of capital and they expropriate everybody else and they're for profit. But if you have an organization which is not built on that, which is funded on the basis of the public good that it provides to those who interact with it, which is the idea in the paper with Vitalik, I think it's fundamentally different. We don't make, quote, cartels of charities illegal. We don't make, quote, cartels of churches illegal. We make cartels that are trying to raise profit at the expense of their counterparties illegal, and we should. But honestly, we shouldn't have any organization that has that goal in the long term. I think we should try to re replace corporations in the long term with these public good providing entities. Well, it, it's true. I've never seen any decision sanctioning some non-profit organization for being involved in a cartel. <laughs> so on that point, it seems that the, the very notion of a cartel is to be changed in a way. So would you say, whether it is a blockchain or other decentralized technology, because of the social nature and because they are reshaping our societies, or they will, would you say that we will have to change some of our legal concepts, including the ones that we use in antitrust? Oh, if what I'm talking about really emerges, if these new types of public good organizations emerge, I think all sorts of things are going to have to fundamentally change in our society. I think these organizations are going to be somewhere in between states, corporations, and civil society. And currently, those three things are treated completely differently. Yeah, that's going to be a huge challenge. Absolutely. So, indeed, if that were to happen... To me, it would mean two things. It would mean that if you still want to apply antitrust for some reason, you will have to change it and to reshape it. Or you might say 
which will be very contentious, that maybe you don't need antitrust anymore, or at least part of it is now irrelevant because of the nature of the new organization. Yeah, I mean, I come from competition policy. It's what I'm sort of most known for, probably. But that doesn't mean that I think it's the right framework for every society. I think it's the right framework for a capitalist corporate society. And we may not always live in that sort of a society. So your vision is evidently for a much greater role and power to civic society, and you've suggested potentially in some future universe there being no role left for corporations. Where does that leave the state vis-a-vis civic society? I think the state and corporations would all be replaced by a diverse range of these civil society organizations. They would be different than existing civil society because there wouldn't be a free rider problem because they'd be funded by the partial abolition of private property. There I see an issue, and I'm curious to have your opinion about that. You say there is no role for the state, to which I sympathize. But, well, it seems to me that in Europe and all over the world, we have two types of populist movements. One, which is the Yellow Vest in France, which is about being against the state. So there I see no issue. But also you've mentioned the fact that blockchain and those technologies are a social movement. But it seems to me that the other type of populism is precisely the idea that some part of the population is worried about the fact that the state is losing control. So how do you see that part of the population reacting to those technologies disrupting the state? Are you concerned? I think actually what people are concerned about is not the loss of control by the state. What they're concerned about is the appropriation of power by a small number of private interests, and it's being taken away from a notion of the collective good. But I think that the focus on the collective good at the level of the nation state is not most of those people's focus. In fact, you go to most people who are like status, they are really worried about protecting African-Americans who are a tiny minority within the United States and are not well protected by the state in most cases. In fact, the state has been waging a war in the form of the war of drugs against African-Americans. Many of the people who are worried about the state losing power worry about global warming. And in many ways, the state is the greatest enemy of a solution to global warming because the state is within its national boundaries and is not thinking about the globe. So the state is both too large and too small for most of the communities that those who think they are defending the state are skeptical of. So I actually think that if you get beyond the concept of the state and the corporation, and you talk about public good provision and collective action, then this conflict starts to fade away. So there's some big ideas for you. How can we use data structures and mathematical technologies to redesign our societies? What does it mean to think of personal data as relational rather than individualistic? And if we're to solve the biggest challenges facing us today, do we need to be thinking more about community and collective action than about competition? Hopefully, Glenn has given you plenty of food for thought. Next on Competition Law, we're joined by Professor Ariel Ezraki from Oxford. And continuing with the theme of values, 
Ariel shares his insights on the values that underpin competition policy in the European Union and how they're shaping the approach of its competition authorities to big tech. Until then, you can find the show notes for today's episode, including links to some of Glenn's work and other useful resources at competitionlaw.com. Competition Law was produced by written and recorded.com, and I'm Karan Beaton Wells. Mm-hmm.